you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter number 11. Genesis chapter number 11. Excited to continue through our series in Genesis. Uh, we're, we're coming along quite nicely. Um, I hope you're staying with us, potentially even reading ahead um, and following along with our series. If for whatever reason you might have, have missed a sermon or two here and there, for whatever reason, uh, don't forget that we are posting those sermons online at uh, libertyhillsbible.org. You can catch up on the series there and avail yourself of that resource. Title of this morning's message is Ambition and the Glory of God. Ambition and the Glory of God. Ambition is somewhat of a dirty word, right? There's a lot of negative connotations that are attached to it, but in and of itself, it is somewhat of a morally neutral word, right? Uh, it essentially means a strong desire to do or to achieve something. It's essentially what the word ambition means. And so as we consider that, that definition, we know that there's not necessarily inherently wrong, thank you, sweetie, with a strong desire to do or to achieve something. The question is, to what end and for what purpose do I have a strong desire to achieve something, right? And in Genesis chapter number 11 here, we're going to see uh, a group of people that uh, are desiring to achieve something quite grand and quite great on the scale of achievement. Uh, but yet they find in themselves wrapped up in the ambition and their sin nature has taken over that ambition and instead of accomplishing something for the glory of God, they're concerned more about themselves. And so ambition and the glory of God. This chapter actually will represent a shift in the book of Genesis. If you can believe it or not, chapters 1 through 10 are really the introduction to the book. Right? So I uh, hope that doesn't scare you at all. We're still going to be in Genesis for a while, so buckle in, right? We just made it through the introduction to the book, right? We've, we've got all the background that's needed up to this point for us to build now upon these narratives that are going to be shared as we uh, see the, 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 the Hebrew people, the nation of Israel, uh, kind of bud and blossom, standing alone as a set-apart, chosen people of God. Uh, we're going to see uh, household names that you've heard in, in Sunday school. We're going to see Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob and others throughout this book. And we're going to be excited to see through it all God's faithfulness and His plan and His sovereignty really come to light as we continue to work our way through the book of, of Genesis. So our big idea this morning in chapter number 11 is this. Because God is faithful to His promises, He will continue to make a way and preserve a line despite the sinfulness of mankind on the earth. Let me read that one more time. This is the big idea of our text. Because God is faithful to his promises, he will continue to make a way and preserve a line despite the sinfulness of mankind on the earth. If you'll remember back just a few weeks, David Welch preached a message where we were given a promise. And that promise was a what? It was a rainbow, right? The flood had, had come and it had gone and and now the uh, individuals that were present on that ark are now coming out to go and be fruitful and multiply and to subdue the earth. And they were given a, a sign, a promise, which was that rainbow. And that rainbow represented a promise that God would never destroy the face of the earth and mankind by a flood ever again. And we think at some point hitting that reset button is going to be very beneficial for mankind, don't we? We think surely they'll get it right this time, right? If I was there, I would have. And that kind of some, sometimes how we think, right? I wouldn't, by the way, that was a little tongue in cheek. We look at these individuals and we see how the population has now grown and, and surely they would learn from this incredible devastation, this worldwide global flood that wiped out everybody save Noah and his family. But yet here we are. Just a few chapters away, certainly a few generations have passed as well, but mankind is in a very similar place.
place. Their sin nature is running rampant. They have forgotten about the goodness of God and His provision. Instead of worshiping God, they have exchanged that for worship of themselves. So with that big idea in mind, God, His faithfulness and His promises, making a way, preserving a line, and the sinfulness of mankind still present through all of that, we're going to look this morning at just four simple truths that are present in our text this morning. Before we dive into our first point, let's go ahead and read our text this morning, and then we'll open in a word of prayer. Genesis chapter number 11, verse number one. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Verse five, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down. And there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. We're going to stop there in our reading. As we work our way through the text this morning, we'll read the remainder of our text. Let's open in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Why? Because you're God and you are on your throne and you are truly worthy of all our worship. Father, I pray this morning that you would truly show us Christ. Yes, even in the pages of this Old Testament text, that you would show us a promise, a Messiah, that for them was to come, but for us has come. His name is Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And we thank you that he took on that flesh that he lived a perfect life. That he did the will of the Father that only he could do to go to the cross, shed his precious blood to make atonement for my sin, for our sin, for the sins of the world. Father, I pray this morning as we work our way through this text that we would be attentive to what you would have for us in your word. We would not just once again go through the motions of coming to church, but we would be mindful of the fact that we are part of a body fitly joined together and that we would engage corporately right now together as a body to hear and to respond to your word rightly, to recognize you as Savior and Lord and to submit our lives to your will. Father, do the work that I cannot do. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. So the first truth we're going to observe this morning is the presence of sin still present in mankind. The presence of sin still present in mankind. So how do we actually see the sinfulness of mankind exposed in these opening verses of chapter number 11? We don't really have to look too hard, do we? Are you with me on that as I read those first few verses, those first 10 verses here? Was it too difficult to see how the sinfulness of mankind has continued to grow and to grow and now even coming to a climax here at this stage and this point of the history of mankind? We see first that their actions, the actions of mankind seemed to contradict the direct purposes that God had given them all the way back in chapter number nine. Do we remember what purpose that God gave mankind back in chapter number nine? 
as they're coming out of the ark, what did God tell them to do? You remember? Yeah. Be fruitful and multiply and go and subdue the earth, right? And fill the earth. That was the commission that they were given, right? Turn over to uh, chapter number nine, just a page over, and let's look at verse number seven there. And you be fruitful and multiply. Team on the earth and multiply in it. Look down at verse number seven, just a few verses down. Or excuse me. Verse number one. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then once again, he says it in verse number seven. So this is no doubt the commission and the command that they were given. This is their role on the earth to do this. Okay. So instead of doing that, what have they done? They have decided to find a plane and to settle in the land of, of Shinar. And now they are getting a little restless they're not fulfilling the command of the Lord. They're not living and walking in His will. And they're embracing their own way, their own will. And they've decided to do what? To build a tower. To build a tower. And at first glance, you say, well, what's the big deal about that, right? You look at the Old Testament, people are building altars and towers and structures all the time. What's the big deal about this tower? It's the object that this tower is to represent, and that is the sinful ambition of mankind. The sinful ambition of mankind. So let's go back to chapter number 11. Let's read verse number one. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Okay, this is a, a very important distinction at this point in the narrative. Everybody is speaking the same language. There are no different dialects, no languages. Everybody can communicate, articulate, and understand each other's words. Let's go on, verse number two. And as people migrated from the east, they found this plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. So that term settled there is important. Because that is exactly what stands in contradiction to what? The command and the will of the Lord. It was to go, to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. The, the earth, not just this region, not just this area, but to go and to spread out in this manner. But yet, mankind here has decided to settle. To lay down some roots, so to speak. This may seem like a simple distinction or contradiction that we point out that stands against chapter number nine, but it is very important for us to understand. It's important for us to understand why the Lord responded in the way He did as a result of the actions of mankind. So let's observe the degree of depravity at this point. Look with me at verse number four. It goes on. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now this is mankind acknowledging that they understood the command and the will of the Lord. Right? Lest we think that maybe they just kind of got things mixed up. They didn't understand really what the Lord meant. Here in verse number four, they're admitting that they know that they are to be what? Dispersed across the whole earth. They're acknowledging that. And instead of fulfilling his plan and his purpose as laid out in chapter number nine, they settled in in this plain at Shinar. This was not a sin that was stumbled into. This sin that mankind exercised here, it was premeditated, it was deliberate, it was calculated. They knew what the Lord expected and they simply chose another way. Let me say that one more time. They knew what the Lord expected and they simply chose another way. And I, in jest, in my opening comments, kind of joked about, hey, if I was there, I, I certainly wouldn't have made these same decisions. Isn't it easiest for us sometime when we're reading God's word to kind of say, man, just kind of shake our head in disgust at 
the decisions that were made and things that people did, and we just kind of forget our own lives and our own sinfulness. What if I chose any other way? What if I had chose differently than mankind here? No. How often, friends, do we know exactly what the Lord expects from us in our life, in our family, in our marriage, in our relationship with our kids, and we simply choose another way? What's that called when we choose another way other than God's way? It's called sin, right? James 2.10, if we offend the law in one point, we're guilty of it all, right? It's just simply offending God's word, his command and his way. This is sin. And so even post a global flood, when all of mankind is wiped out, save Noah's family, we see the presence of sin alive and well here in mankind's. And it's, it's not just a little bit of sin. It's, it's depravity at its worst. Calculated, deliberate, premeditated, knowing what the Lord expected and simply choosing another way. We saw this at the early stages of mankind in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. They knew God's Word. They knew His commands. And they simply what? Chose their own way. We saw that continue to grow to the point where the Lord judged mankind. In His righteous and holy character, God delivered swift judgment on mankind because of the depravity that they had experienced. But here we are, post-flood. Generations have passed and sin nature is absolutely very much present in the hearts and minds of mankind. Mark 7, verse number 20. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, Wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from what? Within, and they defile a person. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So what's the big deal again about this tower of Babel that mankind have decided to erect in their own honor and for their own glory? Why does it represent something so bad? Where did it go wrong? Should we really be that concerned about a tower in Scripture made of brick? And friends, the answer to that is we absolutely should be because it represents the sinfulness then and it reminds us of our sinfulness now. That I know God's commands. I know his word. I know his way. But yet I choose to do my own thing. So as we connect all the dots this morning of God's purposes that we've continued to see through chapters 1 through 10. But as recent as chapter 9, we can conclude that there should have never been a what? A tower of Babel. That's why it matters. There should have never been a Tower of Babel. Why? Because mankind should have heard, listened, and obeyed God's Word and gone and been fruitful and multiply and filled the earth. There should have never been a Tower. We see the people of God more concerned about their own convenience and their own way and their own ambition over the clear commands of God, this mass gathering of mankind stands as a direct affront to the purposes of God. And it's pretty clear here, isn't it? In chapter number 11, there's really no gray area. I wonder if they're doing right or wrong. We read these first nine verses and it's clear they are sinning and it's deliberate and it's wrong. But friends, I wonder, 
How often do we view our own heart, our own choices, subtle, respectable sins that we may allow to sit and fester for days and weeks and months and years and even decades, ignoring the clear commands of God. Friends, this first point this morning, the reminder that the sinfulness of mankind is still present, speaks directly to our own heart, our own life, and our standing before God right now. I wonder, is your life standing as a direct affront to the will and the purposes of God right now? Are you right with the Lord? Are you right with those within your body? Are you right with your spouse, your employer? You fill in the blank? Can we not put ourselves figuratively in the place of mankind here and understand that we need to view and acknowledge and ultimately respond with haste in dealing with our sin? Aren't you thankful for a gracious and merciful God? First John chapter number one, verse number nine. We confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from what? All unrighteousness. Friends, there is no sin that could be committed that is too dark and too deep from the reach of the Lord. His grace, His mercy is standing ready to just lavish you and to overwhelm you with His goodness and forgiveness. I wonder this morning, are you ready to receive it? And so this first point this morning is a reminder, certainly, of their sinfulness, but ours. The second observation that we see in our text is this. We see a priority of serving self above all else. We see a priority of serving self above all else. Very much connected to the first point, but giving a unique nuance that I think we see here in, in chapter number 11. So now, not only do... Mankind assert that they know better than God, meaning instead of going and filling the earth and, and following his plan and way, but now they attempt to what? Assert that they are more important than God. So they're asserting their knowledge and their wisdom over God, but also their authority and divinity or the lack thereof, right? They are not, but they attempt to be that. I love our, our children's time. I've had the opportunity the last few weeks to spend um, the application implement, implementation time back with the kids. And about four weeks ago, I think it was, if I was tallying the calendar right, we're working through the New City Catechism. And the New City Catechism, it's, it's basically structured in the format where it asks a question, it gives an answer, and then it anchors it in the Word of God. Okay, so that's essentially what a catechism is. Ask a question, gives an answer, and anchors all of that in Scripture. Okay, so New City Catechism, uh, Tim Keller's ministry put it out, great resource for children and for all of us. I would encourage you all to, to take a look at it. But four weeks ago, four weeks ago, we asked a simple question, how can we glorify God? How can we glorify God? And the answer to that question was simply by loving him and obeying his commands and law. We anchored those question and answer in Deuteronomy chapter number 11, verse number one. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments when? Always. The kids might remember that we described glorifying God as making him big in our lives. Uh, Olivia is in the nursery right now, but our, our two, year, two and three-year-olds will come down to the children's time. It's always a challenge sometimes, but I'm thankful that we can, we can uh, share them simple truths of the Word of God. And Olivia was, I had her uh, stand next to me, right? She's maybe coming up kind of mid-thigh right here, and everybody was sitting in their seats, and you could hardly see her, right? Just a little girl. And so I gave the illustration as she was here. I, I put her up on the table next to me, and she was about the same height as me, right? And it, my point was, this is how we, we make something we big, right? Glorifying God is making it big. 
Uh, Olivia was once small, and now she's standing up. Everybody can see her, and she is big. Uh, It was a poor illustration. Please forgive me. Uh, But the point of it was just that, right? How do we glorify God? By making him big in our lives. And how do we make God big in our lives? By simply loving him and obeying his, his word, right? That's how we make him big. That's how we glorify him in our our life. And so kids, if you'll remember, we talked about that. We gave that definition. We gave that illustration. But kids, do you remember, oftentimes we don't give God the glory. And instead of giving God the glory, who do we give glory? Who are we concerned about getting the glory? Go ahead and say it. Ourselves, that's right. We're more concerned about ourselves getting the glory. And so the takeaway was, don't be a glory. Good. All right. Don't be. Wow, that was four weeks ago. Love it. Don't be a glory robber. And the whole point of that was we, cre- we were created to give him glory. We were designed to be in relationship with him, to love him and to know him. But yet our sinfulness, choosing our way over God's way, breaks that fellowship. And so kids, don't be a glory robber. That was exactly right. Well done. A robber steals and takes what doesn't belong to them. So the moral of the lesson, again, was don't steal what belongs to God. This is exactly what we have going on here at the Tower of Babel. Instead of glorifying God with their lives as evidenced by their love and obedience to him, they have chosen rather to glorify themselves as evidenced by their love for self and disobedience to God's clear commands. So kids, mankind at this point in Genesis chapter number 11, they have all become glory robbers. So is there anything at this point that is fundamentally wrong or evil about this tower? The answer to that is yes. Why? Because we have seen them assert their wisdom and their way and now their authority over that of God. We see here a sin of motive and it's screaming out to us all in these pronouns that are present here in these first few verses. Verse number three, and they said to one another, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Verse four, and they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we to be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Why was the Tower of Babel wrong or sinful? Because its only sole purpose was to glorify self. Wow. Just the age-old sin of glorifying self over God right here present in chapter number 11. How often in our day and in my life, in my sphere of influence, in my marriage, in my home, with my family, in the workplace, do I live out this sin of stealing God's glory? Maybe my actions don't necessarily scream a horrible mistake, but yet the motive of my heart is so arrogant and so proud and so self-serving. The simple choices of life, getting up in the morning, interacting with my family, going to the workplace, interacting with colleagues. Do you not see yourself just wanting to steal glory and have your way at every turn? It was John Newton that said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. We have to go on the offensive. When we look at the sinfulness of mankind as clear and direct and explicit as we see here in chapter number 11, this is a reminder, friends, that we can't go a day, a week, a month, a year. We can't even go a second without being on the offensive battle to be killing sin in our lives. 
Because if sin left to itself, it will always escalate. Sin will always escalate to more sin and to worse consequences and to greater impact in the lives of others around you. Sin will always escalate. The priority of serving self above all else. How many times in one day am I more concerned about my own name, my own reputation, my own status or standing over that of God's? This phrase, let us make a name for ourselves. This is the hinge of the entire story of the Tower of Babel. There is no questioning about what this tower is for, who is for, and what it was to accomplish. Let us make a name for ourselves. The Gospels tell us that he must increase, but I must what? Decrease. The simplicity of that verse applied here to the Tower of Babel could have done wonders. But instead of being aware acknowledging their sinfulness and taking action to right the ship and to repent of their sin, they continue to dig their heels in their sinfulness. Let us make a name for ourselves. That's why even as a pastor, I can become enamored with checking those Roll calls in those numbers week over week. I can check those financial ports that Luke so faithfully sends out. Thank you, Luke, for doing that. Seeing the dollars in the coffers, the names and lives and families in pews. I can get more enamored with those things over what? The faithfulness of God's people and their growth and understanding of their relationship with the Lord. Friends, this is our sinful nature. And it's here, it's present, and we are, are desiring to serve ourselves above all things. It was present there, it's present now, and it will be present until the Lord comes. So far, we've seen this morning the presence of sin in mankind. Secondly, we saw the priority of self above all else. Thirdly, this morning in chapter 11, we're going to see the sovereign purpose in the dispersion of mankind. We're going to see the sovereign purpose in the dispersion of mankind. So the Lord comes down. He sees what's going on and he decides that he must not stay on the sideline, but he must what? Intervene. He must intervene. I just, I love this. There's time and time again in Scripture, we see these divine interventions of the Lord into the history of mankind. And each moment, it is so beautiful to understand because theologically, we learn something about the Lord. Just like we mentioned last week, God is not some distant, hand-off kind of God from His creation. He is intimately involved into the details and lives of mankind. And he desires to be in relationship with his creation. He initiates. He pursues. He is the one that will rescue them from their own way. God refuses to allow mankind here in Genesis 11 to be left to their own vices. I love it. Are you thankful as you make a simple application to yourself that the Lord initiated a relationship with you, that he ran after you, that he pursued you, that he didn't leave you to your own vices of sin? Can we say amen to that? This is a beautiful truth. This is who God was then. This is who God is today. And this is who God will always be. Pursuing a remnant, redeeming a people for his own glory. This is what we see here in Genesis chapter number 11. This reminds me of our not-so-recent series through the book of Ephesians. Do you remember that divine intervention there in chapter number 2? I thought I'd get a smile from Dave on that one. It's been a few months. Do you remember Genesis chapter number 2? These are just beautiful verses. Did I say Genesis? Ephesians chapter number 2. I thought I saw some like heads turned sideways like that's not right. 
Turn with me real quick to Ephesians chapter number two, if you will. This is a decent block of text, but friends, I I feel like it's just so important for us to anchor down this truth of divine intervention and God pursuing his people for his glory. Ephesians chapter number two, verse number one. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, but were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, the divine intervention right there, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We see the divine intervention there in chapter number two of Ephesians. We see a divine intervention right here in Genesis chapter number 11. Let's read verse number five. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down. And they're confused their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, the name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Let's look exactly um, at the actual observations that the Lord points out here in verses 5 through 6. What does the Lord point out? First, he points out, behold, they are one people. Secondly, they all have one language. Thirdly, this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for for them is the fourth observation that the Lord makes. So before we dive into those four observations, what exactly was the Tower of Babel? You might be familiar with the ancient architectural term ziggurat. Right? This is what we believe the Tower of Babel to have been, literally a stair-stepped pyramid-like structure. This was an attempt of mankind to create a stairway to heaven in an attempt to gain, in some way, divine status. Okay, So this is what mankind has been attempting to build. The Lord sees this. He comes down and makes these observations. So that final and fourth observation is the one that I want to hone in on for just one moment. Nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. What is meant here by this word, nothing? Right, this is an interesting phrase, isn't it? Is this to mean that they are are actually able to build a tower into the heavens and um, achieve some divine status? Absolutely not, right? What is being brought out here in this statement. The title of my message is what? Ambition and the glory of God. Tying this statement back to our definition of ambition, which is a strong desire to do or accomplish something. Okay? Mankind, from this point on, will always have this itch in their hearts to accomplish the greatness of that was sought after here in chapter number 11. Generation after generation after generation, the ambition, the sinful ambition that's present here in Genesis chapter number 11 will recreate itself in new and modern and technological type ways. Right? You don't have to look too far to look at some of our largest corporations in the world and just stand back and say, wow, they have accomplished some incredible things. Think of engineering feats and, and buildings and uh, advancements in, in medicine and all these things that we've accomplished as mankind. Most of it has been in the pursuit for what? Ambition, making a name for our 
selves. So nothing, nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. What, is mostly, what most likely is meant by this phrase is that mankind, again, will continue to be ambition, ambitious, and that ambition will cause them to accomplish some incredible things with the minds and bodies that God has given us. However, and maybe even more importantly, I believe that this text is a great reminder that mankind, if left to themselves, will always desire to usurp the place of God as the only truly sovereign being in this world. Friends, think of this from an evil perspective, the atrocities, the pain, the suffering, the genocide, the hate. It's all stemming from where? From the sinful hearts of mankind. If you remember, just a couple weeks ago, we worked the genealogy of chapter number 10. I reminded us that one of the purposes of genealogies is to remind us that God is truly sovereign over all things and all peoples. So although we certainly see the sinfulness of mankind, we see them self, in a self-serving way, we see that God has a sovereign purpose. Even in the midst of the sinful choices of mankind, God is present, He is working, He is pursuing, He is redeeming. He is sovereign over all things and all peoples, and we certainly see that truth right here in our text this morning. Despite their direct disregard for His plans and His ways, God recalibrates the ambitions of mankind to be back on track with His original plan and way. You see that here. So in light of these four observations of the condition of mankind, God chose to act, and His actions are for their benefit. So what does He do? Let's look at verses Uh, I already read verses seven through nine. I won't read that again. The three actions that the Lord takes is he says, let us go down. I love that plural pronoun there. Let us, the Trinity, the Godhead is coming down as one to observe and to pursue and to intervene. Secondly, when they come down, they do what? They confuse their Language And then thirdly, the Lord dispersed them from that plain, from that area of Shinar, from that tower of, of Babel. So he goes down, he confuses, and he disperses. So the result of God's intervention here at the Tower of Babel is that they left off building the city. I love that phrase in our text. God's will, in a way, will always win. If God ordains that something is to happen or to not happen, it will be so, always. Why? Because He is sovereign over all things and all peoples. So they left off building the city. So what is the sovereign purpose of the dispersion of mankind? That they would actually go now and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth just as Chapter 9, verse 1 and verse 7 uh, commanded them to do. This was his purpose from the beginning. In addition, we will also uh, see that there are distinct people groups and nations that will now form in more tangible ways, one of which that will be the nation of Israel through the line of of Shem. So with that said, we're going to make our final observation this morning. The Messianic promise is faithfully sustained. We see our final point that there's a messianic promise that is faithfully sustained. We see this in verses 10 through 32. And by way of, man, I had practiced this so many times to read through all these names. I don't think we're going to read through them just for sake of time, okay? So you can read through and stumble through those names yourself um, this morning. But uh, I want to make just a few quick points. I know we're running a little bit late. I apologize. So here again, we have in chapter number 11, another section of genealogy. And it's, it's just Shem's genealogy, right? Just the line of Shem here. And we know that from the line of Shem will ultimately come who, as we looked back in, in Luke last week in chapter 10, this is ultimately the line that Christ will come from, right? So this is essentially the messianic line here, the line of, of Shem,
And I want us to just point our attention to this one thing. What's our takeaway in genealogies right here? I want you to get this. That our, our main takeaway here is that simply this, God is present. It's three simple words, but if rightly understood and applied, can make an incredible difference in your understanding, not just of this text and scripture, but your own life. As God is present there generation after generation after generation after generation, faithfully sustaining a messianic line, where is God also present? He's present in your life. He's present in the storm of your circumstances right here, right today, whatever they are, whether it's a, a struggle in your marriage, whether it's a struggle with finances, whether it's um, a struggle with an overbearing boss, whether it's a struggle with you fill in the blank and illness, pain. I'm not sure what it is or what it could be for you, but I want you to know just as God is present generation after generation after generation and is sovereign over all things and all peoples, God is there with you. He's there with you. This should be our takeaway as we look at these genealogies and we see over and over and over again God being faithful to sustain a line that will ultimately come to fruition with Jesus Christ. This is, this is unbelievably beautiful. And we should be absolutely overwhelmed with the detail and the sovereignty of God in this, spanning hundreds and thousands of years to himself. It's incredible. So God is present and is faithfully sustaining his promise that he will make a way, he will provide a Messiah, he will have victory as he crushes the head of Satan. Back in Genesis chapter number three, seeing God's faithfulness generation after generation, it, it should cause such a deep resolve to be built up. It should bolster our faith. It should embolden our witness. Why? Because God and his word is true and it will never fail. And that promise all the way back in Genesis 3 has been fulfilled in the personal work of Jesus. And we today, the church, are living in the reality of the faithfulness of God right here in Genesis chapter number 11. That's incredible. And I hope and I pray that you're, you're connecting these dots as we work our way through and its implications on our life right here and today. Angela, our faithful pianist, is organizing a ladies group uh, to sing a special during Christmas time as, as they did last Christmas. And it was such a blessing. So um, Angela is gone. Thank you for putting, putting together that initiative. Uh, we're, we're thankful for that. But she, she chose a song, um, and maybe it's good that she's not here because I'm putting her on the spot. She, she chose a song by Sovereign Grace called He Who Is Mighty. The song is He Who Is Mighty uh, by Sovereign Grace. If you haven't heard it, look it up. Beautiful song. Just put it on repeat. You'll, you'll love it. But much of this, the text of this song is directly from Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55, which I won't, I won't read all the details, but this is described as Mary's song of praise, the Magnificat, right? And, and as you listen to that song, we can just reflect on the faithfulness of God in providing a Messiah through the line of Adam and Noah and Shem and Terah and Abram. It goes on, Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in, in the God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of a humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. 
Friends, as we work our way into Genesis chapter number 12, we're going to see Abraham come on stage. We're going to see some promises that the Lord is going to make and how we're going to see ultimately the beautiful provision of the Lord here for Mary and, his, and her son, Jesus. It just is incredible, the storyline of redemption through all the pages of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. Did you see Christ this morning? Our song, Show Us Christ. My prayer is that you did. And as we consider these final verses of genealogies, we'll see the beginning of God setting apart Israel as his chosen people in the midst of great sin, selfishness, self-idolatry. We see God's patience and long-suffering. He is present and he is working in his own perfect time to maximize his glory on the earth. In the midst of one of the most wicked and great acts of sin, God is planning the way of escape because he truly does love to rescue sinners. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you this morning that you are God. We thank you as we considered this text of the Tower of Babel in the line of Shem. I pray that we would be overwhelmed with our state as a sinner but yet acknowledging that you did not leave us there. You made a way. You gave us a gift, and that gift was Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that there's somebody here this morning who has never accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and personal Savior. Maybe for the first time, they've actually realized that they're in need of, of saving that just as we saw the sinfulness of mankind, the, the sin of motive and sin of selfish ambition, that is all present in our life and our day to day. And I pray, Father, that just as you redeemed a people for yourself in the book of Genesis, that you would continue that work of redeeming a people for your own glory in our day. Maybe there's a young person. Maybe there's an adult a husband, a wife, a mom, or a dad, somebody who does not know you as Savior, maybe recognizes you as a good person, knows you in Scripture, but has never confessed with their mouth and believed in their heart that you were the Messiah. So Father, I pray today that they would seek out myself or Pastor Dave, that they would reach out to a friend, uh, somebody in their life group, a fellow covenant member, um, and that today would be the day of their salvation. What a, what a beautiful thing that would be, Father. So now as we transition to our application and implementation time, Father, I pray that we would do just that. We would consider your word, consider our lives, and respond. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.